it's your death sentence for this week. Um, yeah, what a week it was. We lost a, a giant in uh, literacy, uh, Barbara Bush, uh, the mother of dragons, uh, queen of the Red Sea, um, scourge of Moldavia and sorrow of Carpathia, um, mother of George W. Bush, who with only three commercial airplanes managed to change the course of history. Uh, yeah, so we're all pouring one out for you, for you Bob. Uh, yeah. Rest in power. Exactly. RIP in power, Bob. You're up there with Lil Peep, and I assume some other people have died as well. But mostly just Lil He's Peep. up there. Big pun. Big pun, yeah. yeah. And, you know, they're, they're all up there with you. I'm sure she's looking down on us right now. And, yeah, I, I think her death kind of underlines, you know, don't fuck with Zannies. You know, they, like, one is fine, but, you know, you keep eating loads, then, you know, it's, it's ne- it, it never works out. Yeah. You know, Lean will kill you dead. Exactly. Yeah, you, it, it, it's fun at first, but there's a high and then there's a low. And yeah. Barbara Bush is in that low right now. When she mainlined five consecutive Beach House albums, she instantly died. You fuck with Dream Pop, this and that's what happens. It's yeah. I, we've lost a whole generation to to spacey um, reverb. It's it's tragic. Okay, we're, we're she's up there looking down on us, Barbara Bush. Uh, 1901 to talk about another person who was a bit of a racist and dead also dead also dead a- again another death from uh Zadax and dream pop uh hp lovecraft who um i have a quite sizable tattoo of on my arm i've probably mentioned that before uh i recently booked an appointment to get it covered up and so, I mean, it's it's pretty large. Uh, I, I put a picture of it on my Twitter the other day. So if you want to particularly go back and look at that, you can. You can see my skinny, pale arms that are covered in these little red dots that I can't ever seem to get rid of. But uh, he, his work is kind of important, uh, along with Poe and Stephen King. He's the biggest horror author in American letters. And... People are still grasp, grappling with it. There's still movies and video games and comics that are all 
dealing with Lovecraft. And two books uh, which we're going to do here, Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff and The Night Ocean by Paul Lafarge. Uh, they came out, uh, Lovecraft Country was 2016 and Night Ocean has kind of just come out, hasn't it? Like April, early April? Yeah, it was, it was uh, 2017 is what I'd seen in the uh, front of piece at least. Oh, right. Okay, I, I thought it was like super recent. Um, I thought Lovecraft Country was more recent. This is 2016. Uh, Lovecraft Country has, by the way, been picked up uh, by HBO, and they've ordered um, a whole series. No pilot, just straight to series. Um, what's his face? Um, oh shit, I can't remember his name now. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut that while I try and remember his name. Yeah, Jordan Peele. Why can't I remember that? So, Jordan Peele Utter and... Oh, sorry? That's an utterly forgettable name, despite his immense fame and talents. I know, right? He's <laughs> a very smart and talented and funny guy. And he and J.J. Abrams and are executive producing Lovecraft Country, and uh, Misha Green, who did a show called uh, Underground, which about the Underground Railroad, uh, is actually the showrunner. Yeah, and HBO have just said, like, yeah, well, here's a dump truck full of money, make us a show. And it, this is one of those books, uh, like a lot of uh, kind of big books nowadays, it has a little interview with the author in the back, and it reveals that it, this was originally pitched as a show. Uh, he pitched his last book, The Mirage, which is about what if 9-11 was backwards, so uh, George W. Bush flew planes into a tower in Saudi Arabia or something, and Osama bin Laden is in like the Saudi Arabian CIA or something. 9-11 but backwards. Uh, he pitched that as a, a TV show, and surprisingly it didn't get picked up. Uh, can't see why. But Lovecraft Country was... Um, originally a TV show, and it shows through so much in this. Uh, so the book is split into, I think, seven or eight different uh, episodes. Not, I'm not going to call them chapters, because they're not. They are TV show episodes. They've each got their own individual arc. They're in a shared universe with shared characters, but... And kind of the first episode and the last episode are most significant in terms of plots, and then in the middle there's lots of Freak of the Week episodes, as they used to call them on, like, Buffy and stuff. Yeah, and it's, a, it, it's the same kind of structures, like Buffy or The X-Files, or, or a lot of that, that kind of middle-brow, not exactly prestige TV shows, especially supernatural ones. Uh, so there's a new creepy monster every, every episode, uh, someone deals with it, they... and... Uh, there's a thin r plot running through this whole thing to do with uh, three different families who all intersect. Uh, two families are black, one is white. Um, the white family uh, used to own one of the black families, and uh, there's some shared blood between them as well, which is significant. And um, yeah, it and it's not that great, really. Uh, I wasn't feeling it at all, to be honest. And I was—I went in very 
open-minded, really hoping to dig this, but yeah, just not feeling this, not even one little bit. Um, the writing itself is serviceable. It's nothing was bad, but nothing was good, you know. Um, it, the characters were quite well drawn, but didn't particularly have uh, their own voices, uh, their own individual narratives aren't really that kind of like first person reflexive, get inside your head kind of narration. It's just narrator's voice, same all the way through. And um, yeah, it, 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 like a lot of books, it, its politics were okay, but when you're dealing with this kind of stuff, i.e. Uh, racism in the uh, 1950s, early 1950s when it's set, and racism in Lovecraft and in American culture at large, then you kind of got to pull out the stops. Um, and Matt Ruff is a white guy, uh, which I wasn't expecting, actually. I, I knew about the book before I knew, like, I'd looked at his little picture on the back. And um, I don't want to say that white guys can't write black characters, but they shouldn't write black books, you know? Um, like, if yeah, there's, it, it, it's one of those things where like the the bar, the inherent bar for that, becomes so incredibly high if you're going to walk in from the outside because you don't have that authenticity of experience where, if if you're of a community, so long as you rooted in your own experience, you can really write whatever you want because it's you're a member of it. Uh, it, it doesn't exactly. even have to cohere to the body. But yeah, when you're, if you come from outside, you really have to, uh, you have to excel to a level that others don't because yeah, you're uh, otherwise you're like, what, what the fuck are you doing? Like, what's, yeah. what's the impetus behind <laughs> writing about someone else's life and experience poorly? Like what, what drives that? <laughs> well, he explains in the interview, actually, um, he was in college um, he sold his first book straight out of college, by the way, because um, he's an asshole. And um, he uh, he had a black friend. He had, you know, my friend, he's black. And um, Matt Ruff was going on a hike and his black friend didn't want to come because he didn't like hiking because, you know, if he gets jumped by some crazy white people, then no one can save him. And years later, uh, this was about 20 years ago, uh, years later it came out that's conversation came out as this book uh, he doesn't really give that much else as in terms of an impetus to write this stuff uh, he yeah he's knowledgeable about uh, the Jim Crow era and um, the uh, Tulsa Oklahoma massacre in 1921 which is still something that doesn't get any play especially in I'm guessing American education, where they probably don't talk about that at all, even in Tulsa, probably. Yeah, there, there's a lot of um, the larger, um, like, genocidal acts uh, from racists get brushed over unless they're sort of the keystone ones, like the Birmingham bombings or things like that. But the you hear that they were frequent, but you we are not really taught in America 
specific details. Like the move bombings don't really get brought up unless you're in a college class about racism and the notion that those attacks which were on the same scale and carried out by the federal government happened in the 80s doesn't uh, oh a single human walked by my house and my dog got alerted yeah, but, cats are attacking something in the other room so breathe but yeah I, I i can attest to the fact that um yeah you, one has to dig to learn those details Hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, the Tulsa thing. I only found out about a few years ago, maybe, and um, yeah, I'm still not hundred percent on it. But it sounds insane that that happened in a first world country within living memory. There's probably st- yeah, there'll be close to a hundred, but there's probably some people who were around at the time. But uh, yeah, it was. I mean, there were like bombing runs done on a, a black community. Uh, there was. Like from planes dropping bombs on people, because a a kid uh, tripped over his shoelace and fell on a white girl. It was yeah, it was absolutely insane stuff. Uh, it it comes up here, and um, I think I think the problem that I had was that it, it's the same problem with a lot of discussion about race in America, which is that it's very easy to talk about the Klan and uh, racist sheriffs who say don't let the sun set on you in this town uh, but it's not very easy to talk about the you know, the which I get the things I guess would be called microaggressions nowadays even though they're very rarely micro like the uh, the Starbucks thing that happened last week like, yeah two guys sit down for literally 120 seconds and the police are called and um like setting something in the Jim Crow era isn't really going to get at that too well. There are um, there are times when uh, the black characters are talking to one of the main uh, white characters in this. Uh, he's a magician, like an actual magician, like Harry Potter, not Harry Houdini. But and uh, he makes little, I guess, gaffes when he's talking. But overall, he's overall he treats most of them as equals, even though he's incredibly rich they're kind of lower middle class but uh yeah it doesn't and the only other white people in this are generally like racist sheriffs uh racist magic guys or shoggoths and um yeah it, it, it doesn't get to the the people the racists in this know they're racists like, if you ask these guys if they're racist, they say they would say, yes, I'm absolutely racist, that's the only right way to be. But the racism nowadays isn't that. Like, the Starbucks employee who called the cops after 120 seconds doesn't probably doesn't think of themselves as racist, probably has black friends and so on, and may not even be white. I'm, I'm kind of assuming they are, but may not be. And, um, yeah, it, it doesn't... It, it can't really serve as a, a way of talking about race nowadays. It can only really say, talk about race during Jim Crow. And it's going to say it was bad, it was terrible, and kind of implied in that is it's kind of in the past now. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think a, I don't think a black author would, they could write a similar book, but I don't think they'd make that same error. Uh, I think they would, they would realize, you know. Yeah, a notion of that that comes up a lot in 
especially studies of um, like uh, in the Cecil uh, literature of stuff from the Romantic era, from the Victorian era literature, all that kind of stuff. Of ones, there is simultaneously this portrayal of the continuity of history um, and the the arrow of time within white and Western culture, but a divorce of continuity in areas where that would imply some sort of like crime on the part of the culture. So the notion that like the West rose up from the ashes of Rome and built itself during the scholastic era and all that, like all that's well, well contained and well maintained through literature and through art. The notion that there is this inheritance of intellect and culture and whatnot, uh, all there. But the minute that it comes that the notion of a book needing to call the task like the crimes of slavery and the crimes of uh, Jim Crow and the tacit slavery that followed in the wake of uh, slavery being made literally illegal and the way that with like Mar- uh, there's a, a good Martin Luther King speech um, that was recorded on this topic of the uh, the need for reparations coming from the fact that due to slavery um, and due to capitalism, um, black folk in America were deprived the same economic base that white people were in order to build a life for themselves. And so this very notion that because you're not a slave, you have the same chance doesn't really make sense when one person is inheriting money and the other one is inheriting literally nothing. but the notion that you have to contain and preserve even that suddenly goes out the window. And that's when you get the, it's sort of like the biggest political problem that comes up in like in steampunk or things like that, that isn't necessary to it. This notion that they show like, you know, gallivanting action and adventure in this distant time period um, without, yeah, really grappling with that, um, grappling with that question of if this is the present's past, what is the connection of this past to the present that requires its telling? Hmm. Yeah. And interesting you brought up inheritance there because uh, it's, a, it's a major thing in here. And not to go into the whole details of it, but um, basically the, the, there's a group, uh, order of magicians, actual magicians, uh, they're doing various apocalyptic workings that um, tend to make them explode and uh, their bloodline kind of like the Skywalker clan in Star Wars is very potent and because uh, Atticus Turner the um, semi-main character in this uh, is part of that bloodline and part of that inheritance he is kind of um, bumped up to white guy status at one point Uh, there's a big ball in this like um Arkham standing village and he's for the first time in a, forever kind of treated as a honored guest and a he's allowed to just walk freely among white folk um he knows a Korea war veteran and he's you know, a smart guy and it's uh, yeah he's the whole um the whole story starts there with a uh, with power and social capital being transferred from white folks down to black people and then 
the world flipping on its head in a kind of in that very Lovecraftian way where stuff just stops working and uh, I'm pretty sure that wasn't intentional for Matt Ruff to say well if we did uh, equalize things between white people and black people then it would unleash cosmic horror but uh, that is kind of the implication at least of the first part and um, but you know there's there's stuff to admire in this like he's you know even though he's a, a white guy writing black characters he never goes into like Ebonics or African American vernacular English which uh, would have really killed this uh, the characters uh, uh, it's it's an action adventure and the characters like all come together they they support each other they uh, they get each other through this whereas the white people kind of squabble over power among themselves and um, it leads to what's the black people winning the white people are losing and um, that's I mean I'm sure it'll, it'll transfer well to the, to the screen I think he was right to pitch this as a as a TV show first, because I don't think the novel form works for this as well as it as it would work on on the screen. I I just have like a, a very much lower standard for anything on a screen, films, TV. But uh, with books, I need a little bit more juice than this is than this has, you know. Yeah, there there's a certain like not not to knock pulp but i think the literary world one it goes through phases of this um and right now we're unfortunately in one where the um the exuberance of like uh, a punkish appeal for like sincere real raw now kind of art that leads to the proliferation of everything from um web comics in the early 2000s uh podcasts now um you know, punk records in the 80s, anything like that. It's like happens constantly. That lowering of um, uh, the barrier of entry. Um, and this this isn't necessarily a bad thing because that's where we also got like the pulp classics. Like we wouldn't have gotten Alan Quartermain and from that Indiana Jones and all that if it wasn't for, for that occasional shallowing. There, so it, it brings fruit pretty, pretty constantly. But there is the cost that comes with it of for every surprisingly rich piece of literature, like as much as liberals are obsessed with it, Harry Potter is going to go down as an important part of literature, kind of like a Winnie mm. the Pooh and yes. things like that did. Um, sort of indisputable. Um, we unfortunately see these sort of good concept, but like flat execution, like your description of Lovecraft Country, where all the roots are there of take... Lovecraft's very racialized notion of cosmic horror and turn it on itself by making it explicitly um, a sort of retribution against a white world and a white society. And that, like, to validate Lovecraft's fear that, you know, ethnic minorities will bring this, but to maybe dispel the, um, the terror of that. But then, yeah, you're the turning it into just sort of 
something that doesn't know whether it wants to be keep gallivanting pulp or like dig into that idea and become you know more sort of like literary fantasy novel hmm. yeah it's it's very uh yeah it doesn't know which world it wants to be in and it ultimately comes out as well what if racism is the real cosmic horror whereas it could do like, a million things with that it could do it's like wow man yeah. profound <laughs> We've only had like six seasons of The Walking Dead saying, what if the, what if humans are the real zombies? Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it doesn't, it can never get to that, to the profound uh, possibilities that this thing could have. And it, it does a less, it doesn't do as well good a job of dealing with Lovecraft and racism as um, Michelle uh, Welbeck's book which basically said um, Lovecraft was a racist and that's good because I'm also a racist and um, that was his first book to kind of launch his career as a racist and um, it's a uh, whose book was that? Um, Michelle Huelbeck uh, oh French, I, yeah. I, I read that book I yeah. bought and read that book same because oh yeah the, the blurb mentioned absolutely nothing about how it would just be validating his ugliest impulses because like i'd read about Hallbeck and i'd read about like uh the atomist was that the name of it atomization uh, atomization oh. yeah and i was like oh that sounds really fascinating and i mentioned it to a friend of mine who happened to be the buyer at an independent bookstore and she immediately went off on on this guy as being like the uh the French uh, Fred Easton Ellis, and I was like, Jesus. Um, she's like, you know, she like, make your own conclusions. It's just it's hard for me to read him in anything. But so I was like, yeah, it's a little wary. Then I saw like, oh, he has this nonfiction book that's about Lovecraft, and it's supposed to be a little bit of literary criticism, a little bit of um, a little bit of directed at writers, um, kind of writing that that little cottage industry. And I was like, okay, that sounds. Yeah, and it's it's just racist. Like it's just an essay about how racism is good, and that's the core of weird fiction is being a huge bigot. And I, it's 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 the same as those uh, like black metal needs to be dangerous kind of arguments. Yeah, it, it's uh, and um, it yeah, it, and uh, that's probably one of the like kind of few attempts to deal with Lovecraft and racism in like a pretty literary analysis way. Uh, and there, there really needs to be a you know, non-white author to really sit down, probably a non-white female author would be even better to sit down and actually deal with Lovecraft and racism and get either fiction or non-fiction out of it that's really good because there's so much you could do with it. And um, yeah, and unfortunately, Lovecraft Country is just not not it, and um, yeah, it it even goes in quite early on because um, the the main character Atticus is a um, big fan of Lovecraft and Edgar Rice Burroughs and uh, Ray Bradbury and these all these like problematic Golden Age guys, and yeah, it 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 just um, it comes up. Um, another character says, well, aren't those guys racist? Uh, and in the space of about a paragraph, it's resolved that, 
yeah, they're racist, but you know, you, you like what you like. And it, it's that's that whole thing is just becoming less and less tenable as a position. And even though, like, I, I'll still, you know, I would perfectly be happy to read a Lovecraft book right now. Um, even though I'm getting his um, face removed from my arm, it's great personal cost and pain. Uh, there's a, a lot of stuff, especially in like music and film and well, everything right now, which I'm just, yeah, I'm just not okay with lowering my standards to so I can listen to Burzum or something because it's shit anyway. And even great stuff like the Rolling Stones. Uh, knowing what I know about those guys now, and bunch of literally being rapists and pedophiles I, I, I can't listen to well a song is I was going to say Brown Sugar that was the first song that came to mind <laughs> already <laughs> massively problematic yeah. uh, Tumble and Dice would be a better example yeah. a great song that is not uh, eye-raisingly racist yeah uh, what was the original title of uh, Brown Sugar it's like Black Bitch or something just absolutely I, I, insane um, I, I think it. I think it was that. I'm double checking right now. Yeah, it was. It was just. Yeah. But yeah, I, 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 I don't. I don't know where my lines are with this because I'm fine with Lovecraft, even though he is a horrible racist. I mean, that whole um, the creation of the N word uh, poem was insane. Uh, though I was like basically defending him for years, saying you know he was this weird guy who lived in a very small town and didn't go out and basically just talked to his mum and a bunch of weird pen pals and it was the 1920s and so on so you know, he's going to be racist pretty much everyone was back then but uh, and I don't know why I'm okay with Lovecraft but I'm not okay with Mick Jagger yeah? I, I, I do have a slight answer to that and I'm, I'm lucky that I incidentally had a discussion about this like today um and it's something that I think leads to uh, it, it. It leads to a lot of the um, questions about art and criticism that, that we have sort of floating in the air right now of the intersection of um, art and politics, and that's because we factored out the most important part of art, which is aesthetic. Like if we're being blunt we can write as many fluffy words about the sociology of art and the um, the cultural aspects of art, but by and large, art is aesthetic first, like a dead circuit mm. of pure aesthetic that's then brought to life by the psychology and sociology of whatever era it finds itself in. That's how the same book can be read differently in, you know, different times and by different readers. You know, all that stuff. That's, that's basic uh, theory yeah. stuff. But it's because of that, like, there is some aesthetic element within Lovecraft that feels like there's this recurring temptation. We see this also in extreme metal, which has similar problems of disgusting racism buried inside this thing that a lot of people love and find value in. And it's this, it's because there's this thought in the back of the head of what if I can reclaim this? What if, what if there is a way to like dig out like a surgeon, like removing a tumor, the elements that lead it to blossom 
into something ugly like racism or misogyny or transphobia or things like that. And I can retain these other bits. That's why, like, for metal, it's pretty easy to point to, like, we have, you know, we have Burrism and Inquisition and shitheads like that and record labels that are way too friendly with fascist bands because... Ah, Season of Mist. Yeah, and if we're going to be honest, like, Profound Lore... Like this. Yeah, that was heartbreaking because they've got a lot of good uh, bands on that label. But oh almost, yeah, and there's a uh, uh, letting other people dig into that. If you Google the guy behind Profound Lore, there are a lot of uncomfortable stories hovering around him. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we have something like Judas Priest, which feels as as pure and uh, like revelatory. Clear and widely lauded uh, frontman uh, that is universally beloved. Like, doesn't matter what genre of metal you play, you love Judas Priest, you mm-hmm. love Rob. Yeah. Um, that there feels like there must be some that kind of thing within Lovecraft, and there have been plenty of like authors of color, queer authors, things like that, that have dug into him precisely in that effort. But we compare that to certain other artists, and the question of like, what will I lose? if I just put this away and I don't try any kind of critical reclamation process. And it, it, it's a process and not just he's fine, let him in obviously. And that's where I think people start drawing personal lines of like, I'm, I don't think the fruit I'd get from this is worth it, but the fruit I'd get over here is. Yeah. And yeah. And metal being what it is, it's, there's not as much, fruit to be gained there as there would be in in literature that's kind of stood the test of time like Lovecraft has. So it's easy to yeah. um, kick Inquisition to the curb. Uh, slightly more difficult to kick Profound Law to the curb because you know, they got Bell Witch. They're so good. And, right? Um, I know. Like I say, heartbreaking. But, uh, yeah. And easy to kick Michelle Welbeck to the, to the curb because yeah. he's just straight up racist and bad. And a bad writer too. He's not particularly great at yeah. all. Yeah, he has his glimmers of ideas that he mishandles and uh, writes with terrible prose. So that's that's an easy one to just chuck out. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think I, I I'm gonna uh, throw Matt Ruff into the wilderness. You know, he's he started out with good intentions on this at least, and it's not a terrible book. It's it's a fun read at times. Um, I I think. If you weren't really that into Lovecraft, or if you weren't really thinking about these things, like any metal fan is kind of forced to think about all the time, then uh, I think you'd have a better time with it than I did. So that's about as, as much praise as I'm willing to give to this. Again, writing it was just not great. It was just, you know, it was, it was there, it, and nothing was bad, nothing was good. And that's, in a way, even worse than terrible writing. Like, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Chris, Chris uh, Sean Penn. That, uh, yeah, <laughs> that at least was fun. <laughs> yeah. And Morrissey, Morrissey, another oh, problematic Christ, genius. I, uh, his I hate Morrissey fiction, so much. His fiction is <laughs> uh, amazing. I actually, I have his uh, biography, and sometimes it's. <laughs> he hits these points where he's actually like 
like in this like flow state where it's actually really good and that it just it that it's it sounds exactly like Sean Penn to the point where I think <laughs> they must have somehow influenced each other but uh yeah another problematic genius uh but let's do let's do some uh do some music um I want to play a song by a band called uh, Our Place of Worship is Silence. Uh, it's an overly long title that kind of sounds a little deathcore, but they're actually really good. They're from Los Angeles. Uh, they're death metal. That's going to be really obvious in like two seconds uh, from playing it. And um, so it's like, it's like no frills. It's not like, um, I don't know. Um, Yeah, there's, there's no uh, jazz numbers, there's no ambient sections, there's, it's just straight ahead death metal and it really, really, really works. Um, yeah, it's, it's not technical like artificial brain, it's not gloomy like portal, it's, it's just really, really good. And uh, this is off their album uh, With Inexorable Suffering. It's a song called uh, The Decay Maxim, and it's, it's really good. Check it out. It's on now.
that was uh, a place of worship as exile and i think we can all agree that was really 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 good it was very death metal that's for certain it was so death metal like there's like a level of most death metal you could be and that's like right on the line there without getting silly I I have such a spiritual affinity for death metal that the second that it's just really death metal, my whole brain shuts off and I start tipping over furniture and screaming and it's perfect. It's it's the best, I think. <laughs> it is the best. Uh, unfortunately, the next band we're gonna play are black metal. Um, mm. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I I I vetted them. They're not Nazis. Um, That's good. Yeah, for once. Uh, they're on. The ru- uh, the- they're on the sentient ruin laboratories from Oakland, who I, I trust. Uh, they haven't uh, jumped the Hitler shark just yet, <laughs> but who knows? Any any day now, I'm going to find out something terrible about them, and them, they're going to have even less music to listen to. I have a I have a running joke with friends who were complaining about I forget which pop star it was just some random pop star who turned out to have terrible politics and they were like oh this is such a big deal you don't understand how and I just started screaming like no you don't understand you don't know what it's like to like a genre of music where you literally have to the second someone goes hey man there's this really great record that came out you should check it out go okay cool what's the name and as they're saying it you type it into your phone and you hit space and you type Nazi or racist yeah. and you hit enter and you just scroll through Google for a second and you're like cool yeah i'll check them out so long as nothing pops up <laughs> this should just be like a wikipedia of like but you can just it, it should be like on encyclopedia metal metallium or whatever it's called where you yeah can just, there's just like a flag on each entry and you could just check you could it could be verified and uh, it's be a big x mark or a big uh check mark that's it that's and you can need. click on it to get details, but you can just be like, ah, damn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, let's go into the night ocean. Oh, I didn't mean that to be like a pun, like, let's enter the night ocean. Let's take a swim <laughs> in the ocean of night. Uh, that'd be lame. But, uh, yeah, I haven't read this. Uh, you haven't read uh, Lovecraft Country, you lucky yeah. bugger. <laughs> but, uh, I, I think you uh, pulled the not short straw here because this sounds yeah. so my shit. It's got H.P. Lovecraft it, and William Burroughs in. So it's yeah, this it was a pleasant surprise. So I picked this up same time that I happened to get um, uh, Twenty Days of Turin. I happened to uh, a friend of mine works as a publisher, and he recently oversaw the translation of Sisyphian, which is a, a Japanese weird fiction novel. And um, they came out just recently and looked really great. So I picked that up and I had a couple other things that were related to that in the basket. So I just, you know, wanted to immerse myself. Um, And this, I picked this up because the back just sort of mentioned like, oh, it's a modern literary novel that deals with Lovecraft. But it deals with it in like Lovecraft the Man. Um, And it's a historical novel that, you know, jumps between decades and deals with the... um, Sort of that the recurring theme in a lot of literary fiction of the tension between history, historicity, and historiography, and how those sometimes radically alter our psychological map of the world. Um, and so I was like, oh, dealing with that in Lovecraft seems fucking, yeah, I'm in. Um, never had heard of the Just author for the, before. The folks at home, uh, I'm guessing people know what history is, but what about uh, his, 
historicity and historiography. Histori so historicity would be like um, like artifacts, uh, texts, things that we can pin down to history, like an urn or like some some tools. Like you can't argue with them. You're looking at them. You've dated them. They're just the dates may be a little bit fuzzy, but they're a physical thing. They're sort of um, you cannot uh, like betray them or argue against them. They just simply are. Unless you're an insane person who thinks like dinosaurs are four thousand years old, but that's a separate that's a separate group of people. We don't need to talk about them. Um, uh, historiography is the sort of opposite end of that of the tales we tell about history. So like while we may have an artifact, the notion that this is used to do a specific task, what is that task? What was the cultural importance of that task? How common was it? These are things that we can infer. But we can't ever really know without, like, documentation. And even then, documentation is itself a historiography, a tale about history and not the history itself. Sort of that barrier of an event is the event itself, but any recording, any artifact from it is already at least one step removed. Hmm. And so there's always that that tension between... And this, this ties back to our, like, the American understanding of our racist history... We have a historiography that has erased so much of that that it is not a surprise that people wind up being as openly or as quietly racist as they are because we aren't even presented the artifacts of of how wretched and violent uh, white supremacy is and has been. Yeah, I remember um, the, um, doing an African-American... Uh, it was a course on James Baldwin back in... Um, uh, back in university and uh, the uh, tutor showed us a, a kind of coffee table sized book of the postcards people would take at uh, lynchings where there'd be oh, like sometimes thousands of people coming out to watch a lynching as if it was a sports event and horrible medieval tortures going on to, to sometimes dozens of people and they'll all be hanging on trees and like disemboweled and people would take pictures like standing with them, um, and they'd mail these postcards to their friends and family, and so they, it showed what's on the back of the postcards. And it, some of them like were like, well, "I hope you're feeling better after your surgery. Uh, I'll be uh, out there in a few weeks to see you," and so on. It even mentioned the whole lynching part on the other side of the postcard. And yeah, that's uh, a piece of historicity that um, really needs to kind of be yeah they should show that stuff in schools because that's something yeah people need to see it almost made me throw up but it was still yeah still remember yeah years on. it's a necessary but incredibly difficult thing to face um it's the unique difficulty of being someone who benefits from white supremacy facing down that kind of stuff that it's absolutely necessary to do but is so disorienting and but obviously only like a fragment of what it would be to someone who was the victim of that kind of thing, obviously. Mm. But, um, yeah, thankfully, um, one, I, I Lafarge's uh, prose is absolutely impeccable. Um, switches between, um, it, it, it's a pretty discursive kind of prose. Like it, it's very um, telly instead of showy in a lot of ways. Um, but not in a way that, uh, 
so he he rides the line well of there are moments that uh, are buried in sort of the classic gothic trope of found texts that relay yet more information, uh, like a found text that includes an interview with someone who is writing the text uh, had with a third party. And so he, he winds up getting away through that artifice uh, with moments of just explicitly giving you what amount to lengthy history lessons of um, like bits that weird fiction fanatics would know, like the fact that Barlow after he, uh, Robert Barlow is a young man who spent a lot of time with Lovecraft between the ages of like, I think 15 and 18 or something. Mm -hmm. Like Lovecraft lived in his house in Florida um, just with Barlow and his mom. Right. He goes into lengthy detail about Lovecraft in Florida. Yeah, it's it, it's a bit of Lovecraft's life that gets omitted from like the cultural myth of him, but is a pretty big period in his life. One of the few times that he left Providence um, for and for a long period, uh, like they were in correspondence for a while, but he lived down there for about like eight weeks. Um, but yeah, so it includes that bit. Uh, his interactions with Barlow and includes uh, how Barlow went off to uh, and became like a, a semi-famed uh, cultural anthropologist in uh, in Mexico and like became an expert in Aztec and Mayan studies and also is one of the people who uh, helped try to promote I forget the name of the term I think it was like Cayuc, um, which is the term that like Aztecs used to refer to themselves in their texts um things like that so uh it also deals with the notion of uh that's sort of an open secret in um in weird fiction of the sexual tension within lovecraft's work and uh a thought that can sometimes ride the line of homophobia of a buried queerness within lovecraft's work with his fixation on the monstrousness of genitalia and sometimes the fixation on thing uh, phallic symbols. Hmm. Uh, I was um, I follow um, John Darnell from the Mountain Goats on Twitter, and he tweeted coincidentally a, a picture done by H.P. Lovecraft of an elder thing earlier today, and it's basically just a giant vagina. Yeah, it's uh, it's his first ever pitch he ever drew of one of the like key monsters in his things is so obviously a vagina i thought it was like a smutty doodle he did but then it also has tentacles it was, uh oh and um john darnell did a really good song called lovecraft in brooklyn about yeah which is amazing song as all his songs are amazing actually but, um, it's incredible incredible musician and writer very good writer too yeah yeah uh but yeah, so Lafargeum, he deals with that topic of, like, this notion of did Lovecraft have a buried or repressed queerness? Um, and he, he does it in a way that doesn't... I mean, obviously, I would defer to someone of, of the queer community for a better read on this, but it didn't come across to me as, um, as the potentially homophobic way that a lot of details about this can be of, like, oh, wouldn't that be, like, naughty or strange mm, if he was yeah. gay? Instead, it's... um he humanizes uh without defending figures like lovecraft um in the novel quite well the the premise of the novel is it's set in contemporary 
time and a uh, a woman who is herself uh, a doctor holder has her husband seemingly commit suicide after being committed to a mental health facility um, where he uh, got driven to a lake after uh, hitchhiking and his body was never found. And they presume that he uh, drowned himself. But she fixates on the fact that his body was never found and there's slight correlation between his disappearance and a story that Barlow uh, wrote in conjunction with Lovecraft called The Night Ocean, hence the, the title of the book. Is that a real story? I don't know. I hadn't heard of it prior to this, but... Yeah, um, never heard of it either. Uh, I'm gonna... I can tell... Uh, yeah, no, it's by H.P. Lovecraft and R.H. Barlow. Yeah, oh, that's real. Okay. Wow. Um, yeah, I haven't read every single Lovecraft story. I've read most of them, but there's some that have slipped, so... Mm, yeah. I just got the, like, Penguin edition of his Same, collection. Yeah. But... Yeah, so this, uh, uh, so it then delves into her husband's notes where he became obsessed with this notion that Lovecraft may have been queer and he wanted to write um, his own, like, thesis, basically, about uh, uh, queerness and sexual iconography and imagery within Lovecraft and um, sort of the psychological element within. And he wisely chooses that the husband, inter like interrogating Lovecraft in a literary way, will himself be uh, uh, a black man from from Brooklyn. So, like deliberately pressing on that racist nerve of Lovecraft and that that bit of his history that when once you learn it, it's sort of it's impossible for it not to taint Lovecraft in some way. And then having a woman be the one relaying those notes. So he's very active in engaging with the um, the misogyny, the uh, the weird, um, if not incestuous, then at least psychologically damaging remnants of his relation with his aunt. Um, how they place or he places historical details in that allow his literary version of Lovecraft to riff off of other people in places like, uh, so he has an incident where, um, Barlow who, um, famously tragically killed himself in his early thirties because he was afraid that his homosexuality was going to get disclosed by a student who was angry at him for a low grade, uh, in the early fifties, which is a horrifically common story for that time period. Um, he, uh, he has an incident where Barlow um, winds up having sex with uh, a black man in Georgia. And Barlow isn't bar bothered by this at all because he's a working class guy. He's been, it, like, he doesn't see any human difference between him and black folk. He just sees sometimes a cultural difference, but doesn't doesn't see it as better or worse. It's just like they're different than I am, but that's fine. There's plenty of different people all over the world. And he relays this to Lovecraft, and he wisely lets, or Lafarge wisely lets Lovecraft play out his, like, cold European uh, New England racism of just disdain for the act and feeling like it stained Barlow. But placing the event in Barlow's voice, so Barlow can go, I didn't understand why he was so bothered by this. I just had a pleasant evening 
with uh, another guy. It was perfectly consensual. We enjoyed ourselves. It was a good evening. Um, so it, uh, it, it deeply engages in those aspects of Lovecraft and doesn't let him off the hook and places, places those interrogations in the mouths of people who would be allowed to interrogate him the most. And does so in a very human level. Like, it doesn't play up. Like, something that we run into sometimes with um, anti-fascist resistance is sometimes we can do the fascist job for them of painting them as mythic and all-powerful and omnipresent and these kinds of things that really serves more to verify the statements of fascists that they are everywhere they are everyone it is the thought that everyone holds um and lafarge does a better job i think of navigating it's a thought that arises in glimmers like sort of uh, just the little bits in a lot of people but only really fully blossoms in certain people and and tamps down on it as much as he can of going like there are plenty of other people. And this ties into what you were saying before of like the common defense of Lovecraft. I think everyone who has liked him at some point, it's uttered. I know that I had, and it's a common refrain also from white people about the past of straight people about the past on and on that like, Oh, back then everyone was just blank. And that's just emphatically not true. Like the more you dig into history, the more that you see that like anti-racist, uh, resistance is as old as slavery and older anti anti-queer or anti-queer phobic resistance is as old as laws against it mm. we're sold this weird myth that it was the hegemonic will of society um and lafarge does a really good job of portraying that too like he it's very literary in the prose and in the uh the artifice of the prose and in in the human scope of it like he he it's a story about why these aesthetic elements matter and are so resonant with people of all kinds. Um, But he particularly uh, focuses on like, yeah, it's not an aesthetic that doesn't have history and doesn't even sometimes have a troubling history, but it's also an aesthetic that there were and are queer authors who write uh, Lovecraftian-esque weird fiction. There were and are people of color that have written tales like this whether or not we'd label them as weird fiction sort of tying that um into the question of like the racism of literary like cataloging of when a uh, white person writes a fantasy novel it's a fantasy novel but when a person color writes a fantasy novel it's magical realism oh, yeah. mm-hmm. like th- those little bits that um yeah i was really i was very very happy with the novel and I, I was surprised that i'd never really run into his name before which is pr- more likely just a blind spot on my part but well there, there's far too many books so i'm yeah I'm never um you know i don't try and collect writers like their funko pops or something <laughs> that way lies madness or just being an incredibly boring person um yeah I'm, I'm just all i can say about this book is through flicking through it and it's yeah there's a elements that are done as dialogue there's pictures in here there's it's stylistically and um in terms of layout it's just really interesting looking but again, it's a rich novel yeah absolutely my ship as um, it, it 
it, it avoids also being gimmicky, like not to um I don't actually think like um Egan's novel like a, a Visit from the Goon Squad or Daniel Lewski's um House of Leaves. I don't think there is yeah. over I don't think they're as overly gimmicky as people portray them. I think the the well, text does leaves. I I I'd say uh Goon well, Squad uh, okay. it works, but House of Leaves going going back to that recently, like in the last few years after I read it when I was like kid and thought oh my god this is blown up literature completely for me i i kind of you know kind of i kind of see where people are coming from with that well uh, to be fair i think i think he i think he did a better job of framing it as what it was where he was like i'm a typographer who wrote a novel and so i wanted to make a typographically interesting novel and when you look at it as that i think it it still works where it's it's more interested in aesthetic elements than you know making a statement mm -hmm. um and as as an element of uh aesthetic experimentation and play i think it's it's hard to say it's not uh successful oh yeah it, like it... when's the last time an experimental novel like that got anyone to read it mm, other true. than people like us yeah it, like that's it, the dream i can't fault them breakthrough uh, people are still reading it it's still yeah. like pride of place in a bunch of bookstores i think and I honestly like, like if if people want to like an example of him doing the exact same thing but in a much more literary and like fulfilled style his recent uh book series the familiar has been really nailing that um it's much more egan-esque in terms of being less in your face about these stylistic shifts and more using them to highlight specific voices um mm which I think leads to it being more successful, but. Doesn't that, isn't that meant to have like 40 uh, books in the series <laughs> or something insane? 20, 27 books. 27 and they books. all, okay. they're all uh, hardback. They don't wow. have, yeah, it's, um, I have the first four. Um, it's one of those things where if you, you'll know by the end of the first one, whether you want to continue taking the dive or not. I just, it's, it, it's it's a really like a fun experimental bit of literature, which is not. <laughs> uh, it's refreshing to get one that isn't dour. I love me some dour books. I'm not fronting on dour dour like dense experimental literature. Love that, but yeah, it's. Also, you can read it at the pace of a comic book. Like you can knock out fifty pages in like twenty thirty minutes, as opposed to like. You know, like uh, again, like going back to Gaddis, where. Like it, it's going to take you a bit to work through that book, mm. not just because it's long, but <laughs> yeah, I was like, with Lovecraft Country, I was just blazing through this because um, it was so light and there was nothing really yeah. going on. I remember having to read um, Left Behind uh, uh, back in university, the uh, Christian yeah. apocalyptic rapture books, and I think I, I read like four of them in an afternoon. They're just that easy. I was like, I, I was amazed with myself. And I wasn't skipping. Every single word went in. But yeah, I just blazed through that whole uh, terrible, terrible series. I'm a, I'm a white person with Southern family, so I know all about Left Behind. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite, quite well acquainted with those books. <laughs> and uh, Rayford Steele, isn't it? The protagonist? Classic. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, it sounds like... Uh, I should probably just read the Night Ocean because it's yeah. like a better version of 
well not a better version it's, it sounds fundamentally very very different from lovecraft country in it, virtually every way but uh, it, it's a it's a tremendously satisfying novel it really scratches deep in itch for it it doesn't really break the box in any way but it just yeah it it picks it does exactly what you'd want a novel about why lovecraft matters but also why he gets that kind of twitch twinge reaction from people who know better and just yeah this nails it it's really fucking good and the prose is great which is sort of like the biggest question in a book like will is the reading of it good <laughs> yeah it's because i think we it like some books can get by on being smarter than they are well written which no not because there's plenty of books that are aesthetic first and like total like we were imagining like house of leaves is almost totally empty but aesthetically very very pleasurable very cool and this is this is a nice marriage of the the two yeah cool okay so we're saying night ocean yes lovecraft country maybe if we're on a beach and um trapped on an airplane read that lovecraft country i can't remember what the last book i read on an airplane was uh oh it was um what's his name uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I didn't finish the whole thing because it's literally... I was like, Jesus, God. <laughs> like, yeah, you, a, you read a 900-page book <laughs> on an airplane? <laughs> it, it was, uh, yeah, flights. They're just circumnavigating the world many, many times. <laughs> it was just a completely pointless uh, flight. That's it why you don't book on a uh, kayak. Um, but, no, I, but a big chunk of that. And, and it remains one of my favourite favorite books of all time because it's just so damn good and um it's a book that i never i've never been able to finish it for some reason but anytime i read the reason why is because anytime i read it i get a quarter of the way through a third of the way through something like that and then it just like kickstarts my urge to go write something and then i close the book and by the time i'm done writing and editing and you know shopping around something i i pick up another book by that point but that's like that's a huge testament to something where it like it seems like endlessly fertile and that was a debut novel yeah how do you get it how do you get a 900 page novel in hardback published as your debut yeah and she was in her like 40s 50s when she wrote this yeah like it she must have had a hell of a query letter <laughs> but uh yeah so yeah, read, read that as well, in, in addition to Night Ocean. Uh, but let's, let's do a song. Um, these guys, I just came across them today. So again, maybe racist. Given their name, Nové Militia, and the fact that from France, and I'm not saying like all bands from France are racist, but um, Death Spell Omega and um, what they called, uh, Pes Noir, pre-racist. And uh, Pest Noir share members with uh, Al Alceste or Alce? I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. Is it Alce or Alceste? Alce. I think it's Alce. Oh, yeah. I don't. I don't. Yeah, he was like a, a super well regarded uh, black gaze godfather of the genre who's like worked with Death Heaven and um, yeah, and, and very close with Pest Noir who are like weird fascists. But. Um, 
enough about the problems with black metal because there's we would be here all day if we even scratch the surface of that one literally would never stop yeah by the time you like discuss a quarter of the problem there'd be a new problematic band who turned out to be a pedo nazi or something but, and then they would have connections to other bands that you would have no idea prior to that were shitty yeah they'll have like worked with someone i really admire and then i'd have to like question them and uh, it would just go on forever but these guys i'm they, they've got a blank slate so far nova militia and they've album called uh, gash kalar uh, i assume that's orkish uh, i studied elvish at school so i, I, I don't really speak the, the black tongue of mordor but um it's on sentient ruin laboratories who are always solid um i one of the record labels i, I trust to steer me right and it's uh kind of blackened noise drone it's dense and uh, creepy and unsettling, blasphemous, hideous, utterly horrific, as it says on the copy here. And um, yeah, I I, I kind of dig it. It's it's pretty. It's not going to be for everyone, even everyone who likes metal. But uh, it is. It's better than the vast majority of black metal. Because it does push stuff to new places, uh, as as kind of a lot in Sentient Ruin tends to. And um, yeah, so I'm going to play one of their songs, and it's called Fall of the Idols. It's on Gash Kalar on Sentient Ruin, and it's really good. And you can buy their tape for 25 bucks. Now screw that, don't buy a $25 Jesus set. Jesus God! <laughs> what are they doing? Who, who buys... I... $25 and it's not even like on a nice thing it's oh it's a Tesca set okay if okay that if you're a collector of um, semi-obscure French uh, black noise music then I guess a Tesca set uh, okay I'm, okay okay I'm looking at the wrong bit this is my fault that the actual cassette tape is $7 which is totally that makes more sense yeah that's yeah I don't, okay they got a gate they got double EP uh, LP it's got really nice looking vinyl, picture disc, uh, black and don't, red. Don't vote picture discs. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it looks really good. Yeah, it's a nice looking piece of stuff. It's got um, writing on it in looks like Babylonian cuneiform. I like that I know that. And. Um, <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel like, a, like I'm in a. like indiana jones well just like it's written babylonian at uh yeah so uh, i can't translate it, of course but it, it looks like it but uh it looks like a damn nice release so go get it and um or just stream it off Bandcamp because you know we none of us are millionaires so uh yeah um and i'll be back next week i've got some interviews with some really really interesting people lined up um and some books are coming out that are really, really... It's, it's going to be a wild ride over May and June. Because we got... Um, Tao Lin is putting out a book about psychedelics. Oh, fuck. 
<laughs> I know it's that gonna... sounds so terrible. I know it's gonna be such a car crash. I'm gonna love it. It's. Gonna I hate amazing. that guy so much. I know, and, I can... he's, and he's like pivoted to mysticism because I've done too many mushrooms now. So now he's written a book about Terence McKenna and energy, and he's starting to talk like um, fucking Mike Cernovich when he does too yes. much brain pills. It's, oh, so, it's, being a, so being a fucking sex predator wasn't enough now. He's also got to be the druggy sex... Oh, that's... Yeah, mm. he's, he's gone full Manson. It's going to be great. Oh, my God. It's going to, like, murder Lena Dunham or something. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be such a car crash. I'm going to love it. Uh, also got um, The Pisces by um, Melissa Broder, who does really good tweets. Uh, as so sad today and it's about uh sex with a fish monster and i'm not going to mention yeah i'm not going to mention um the shape of water even once that's going to be my um that's going to be my uh your your lipo-esque uh restriction exactly i'm going to be like uh pushing a boulder up up a hill for all eternity by not mentioning um the shape of water when I'm talking about fish sex. So that's going to be a good one. And uh, there's some other stuff. There's always stuff happening. And there's always going to be uh, metal. And so listen to uh, Novo Militia. And come back next week. Oh, and rate and like and retweet and uh, get those hearts going. Smash that like button. Um, you know, just do, do all the stuff you're supposed to do with like good podcasts. And see you next week.